Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. So tonight, I, I, when I thought about this, I said, let's budget this into two introductory lectures, and then we'll get right into the uh, crusade and the violence. Uh, but two can hardly do justice to the subject. Having said that, the perfect is the enemy to good, and let's make an attempt. So we'll start by trying to define terms, which is very difficult, because when we come, as you'll see tonight, to this subject, or Middle Ages in general, certainly Ashkenaz, the line between fact and legend is quite blurred. And there's a great deal of legendary uh, material that's been passed down from parent to child and that sort of thing, um, which actually isn't historically accurate, but it's become part and parcel of the self-image of the Ashkenazic Jews. I will try my best in this opportunity tonight just try to you know, pull apart some strands over here as we go through this uh, fascinating um, topic. Now, let's start with, let's go back to the beginning. And in that case, that means let's go back to the time of the Roman Empire. There you see is the Roman Empire, the dark area over here. And if you kind of notice, the lines running here aren't there just for nothing. What happened was the Romans uh, conquered a part of Europe. If it was up to them, they'd like to take all of it, but it was too much for them to bite. And uh, beyond here are the barbarians, and there were just so many that you could conquer, and they didn't. And so what they decided at a certain point in Roman history was to dig in and hold, hold the line there. You understand, to limit the empire and try to hold on to what they had, which they did for a couple hundred years. How did they come up with these lines? These are the two big rivers in Europe, which sort of cut Europe in half. This is, this whole area is the Danube. And so Danube is not a little river, it's a biggie. And therefore the Romans kept up to the border there, that's already a natural barrier that they can call this the border, and beyond that is the barbarians. The other half, as I'm doing right now, and this is very important for our story, Azoi, that whole thing is the Rhine River, okay? And the point I'm trying to make is these are two very important and large rivers in Europe. Um, they've been very important to borders and commerce and things like that for a long time. And do not be surprised if Jews will establish communities on the Rhine River because that's where the business is. You know, that's what people move to New York for a reason, right? People move to London and places they get for a reason. That's where you can make money. So in the Middle Ages, especially the high Middle Ages, when there are not many roads and the communication is not so great, the most efficient way of doing business, transporting goods, and all the rest of it is to use the big rivers. And do not be surprised that this will have vast importance. In, it still does today, uh, but particularly in the period that we'll be speaking about. Now, the Roman Empire had Jews, um, lots of Jews, actually. There were all kinds of estimates about it. Um, but we... We know that there were Jewish communities here, where I'm pointing, which is where we're going to be speaking about today. But eventually, in 450, 
uh, the, the Western Roman Empire collapsed. What I'm doing right now with like Italy and all this here. Not this part, but this part, called the Western Roman Empire, fell to the barbarians, and it sort of disintegrated, and the Jews disappear from the Western Roman Empire, meaning we lose all trace of them. So if there are those who believe, and there were many Ashkenazi Jews who believed, that they go back all the way to the Roman Empire in time of the Corban base of English and their Jews who moved there from the destruction, all the rest of it, those are legends. Okay? Any Jews that had been here from the Roman times were either killed or converted or, or enslaved or maybe kicked out or something like that. There's no trace of them whatsoever. And the reason is simple. How did this collapse? The barbarians came in. They don't call them barbarians for nothing. Okay? Uh, one of the things the barbarians do is when they cross over here, they become uh, Christianized. Each barbarian group picks up a particular type of Christianity. Let's move to the next map. Well, hold on. Before we do that, remember this simplistic map and look what it switches to. That. <laughs> Get I, see what I'm saying? Here are the Franks, and here are the Goths, and here's this, and that, and the other. And that's the point. Europe, from being a nice, clean place, turned into a whole hodgepodge of lots of different principalities and kingdoms, of which we call today barbarians. The, the most famous of these are the Franks and the Goths and all that business, and they're Germanic tribes. And they took over Italy, and they took over what we call today France. As a matter of fact, the reason you call it France is it's the corruption of the German, of Frankreich, which means the kingdom of the Franks. Well, you know, in the Roman times, the Franks were kept out. They were the barbarians, kept beyond the Rhine. It was called Gaul, as you remember from Caesar's wars. But then the Franks took it over. And same thing happened with all these other territories, even Spain, Italy, and all, all that kind of business. And so uh, the result is that the Jews disappear pretty much from this map. The only place we have any evidence whatsoever of Jews is in Italy, and very little of that, a little bit. Um, very important to keep this in mind. Now, uh, that happened in 450, for the next 300 years, 450 to 750, we call the Dark Ages meaning we don't know much about anything going on over there. And as far as the Jews concerned, we really don't know anything. Does that mean that there were no Jews there? I didn't say that, but we don't know anything about it. The culture that develops over here, which is going to be what you and I call Western culture, is going to be a cholent composed, obviously, in these centuries of three elements. You have the barbarian tribal pagan stuff. And here they come the Germanic tribes that worship trees and burn people and all that kind of stuff. Uh, still do. You're laughing. Listen to what I'm telling you. 1900, 1902, something like that, in uh, southern Germany, uh, it's a drought. And uh, in Wurttemberg, and 1902, and uh, nothing works. It's a drought, and the peasants and the farmers, no rain. Bummer. They have prayer services. They call the meteorologist. Nothing's happening. After a while, the farmers get together at night a couple times, have a couple of meetings, and they tell the local Catholic priest, why don't you take a vacation? <laughs> yes, then you ought to go see the Pope, visit Our Lady of Lourdes or something like that. You've been working too hard. He said, I don't need a vacation. Take a vacation. Here's a free ticket. The priest goes out of town. The farmers get together, the peasants, and they bury a live cow. Because right? that's what you do. That's what you learn from your parents long ago when you do whether it's a drought. It's still in the culture, just underneath the surface. So that's one piece of it. Second piece of the culture is Roman, because left over from the Roman Empire, that was very important. Uh, the third piece of it is Christian. That's the new religion they picked up. Who knows how these people interpreted and understood Christianity in their day, in the four, five, six, seven hundreds. You get it? And it's a chalent going on in there, and out of this whole mixture comes out what we eventually call the European civilization. 
Okay. Um, are there any Jews over there? Must have been. Why? Business. You know, Jews usually lived over here. There was stuff to do over there commercially. We don't have any evidence of it except a little bit. You find there was a Jewish merchant going through this place or that place. But there aren't any Jewish communities as far as we can tell. If there are any Jewish communities, the big question to ask are, are they Jewish Jews or not Jewish Jews? Which in the time I'm talking about, in 470 to 7, 450 to 750 means, are they Talmudized? Because the big thing going on in Jewish history at that time is the change of Jewish religion from a pre-Talmudic to a Talmudic religion, from the religion that you and I are used to to what it was prior to that. Because once upon a time, there was no such thing as a book called the Talmud, right? It's a historic fact. Long ago, a bunch of people got together, wherever they got together, and created a series of texts called the Talmud. Um, prior to that, you didn't necessarily do things the way it says in that book because the book didn't exist. The Gemara itself is full of multiple types of minhagim and different practices um, that flourished at different times at different places at, at time by time. You know and I know, I'm sure most people here know, that on almost every page of the Talmud, Rabbi Gamliel said this is kosher, Rabbi Kiva said this is tray, for example. One says that this is permitted on Shabbos, the other one says it's not. Guess what? Where he lived, this was kosher. Where he lived, it wasn't. Where this one says it, he's not saying his own opinion, he's usually expressing a long-standing tradition from others. This was okay on Saturday, in other places it wasn't. You understand? Judaism had this multiple kind of practice aspect to it, which becomes uniformitized and, and, and centralized in the uh, three, particularly in the starting in the three centuries I'm talking about, and we know nothing about the Jews, whether, you know, being, that, that may have wandered through this area and done some business over there. Are they following the Talmud Bavli, or are they following the Talmud Yerusham? There are two Talmuds out there. And in the period I'm talking about, especially in these areas, you can't see the map over here, but here's Israel, and here's where the Yerushalmi came out, and here's the Eastern Roman Empire, where it seems that that's what they used to follow as a matter of standard of Jewish practice. Elsewhere, they followed the Babylonian Talmud. What did these Jews in Europe do? Who knows? It's up for grabs. And so it's very difficult for us to capture any kind of reality long ago. This is not Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah. Now, um, in the 750s, in the 700s, uh, things start to change. Because in the late 700s, uh, skipping over a lot, uh, you get the rise of Charlemagne, who the great Charles the Great, the great ruler of uh, the Franks, who basically conquers all Western Europe, like this whole area over here. Germany, France, Switzerland, most of Italy, creates a great empire. Jake, let's see our next page. Is that the ne will we have it on there? Yeah, that's it. This whole area over here is Charlemagne's kingdom, right? Pretty big, including this, right? Not this. This is Muslim Spain. But this whole business over here is the empire of Charlemagne, which means that he was a pretty big conqueror. However, that's not all he did. He's famous not simply for being a big killer and conqueror. There are plenty of those in the Middle Ages. There are plenty of those today. Okay? Um, but he founded a powerful state. He promoted peace and prosperity in the state. And he developed, he created stability for a long time that he was on the throne. He actually founded a country, you might say, or an empire. Uh, he was a person that even though he was a barbarian, he said, I'm a barbarian. That's not good. I want to learn how to read and write. When he was an old man, he went to elementary school. He wasn't ashamed to do it. He's trying to set an example for other people. This is famous. He admired people who could read and write. He actually liked people who took a bath more than once a year. Okay? I'm serious. And this was unusual, uh, well, for a gentleman at that time, to go to a, to, to take a, a bath was considered, you know, unthinkable. And, uh, and he, was, he was a highly intelligent person, even though he had no 
educational background. He came up the hard way through wars and all that. So don't be surprised if Charlemagne, in his time, you find Jews here. Uh, did he bring them in? Were they there before? How did they get there? We don't know the answers to that. But he was a smart guy, and he knew the Jews are bees that make honey. Okay? He didn't bring them in because he liked the way they looked. He brought them in in spite of the way they looked. He brought them in because he knows that Jews will immediately, and this is what they did, they uh, formed communities on the rivers, like in Lyon on the, on the Big Loire River over here, and the, the Rhine River over here in this place and that place. And as I say before, they're bees that make honey. Because in the Middle Ages, as I've mentioned the other day, here in another context, there are no factories. There's no such thing as manufacturing. There's no such thing as industrialization. How do you make money? How does a country support itself? How's it, uh, you know, how does it work financially? And the answer is commerce. There's no other way. I mean, the peasants, of course, produce a subsistence diet. Remember now, in Europe long ago, uh, what did they know about agriculture? Zero. I mean, really zero. And uh, therefore, the amount of you know, food they produced was not that great. And, and it wasn't, by the way. Um, not that they needed that much, because no one knew about diets. So Christians in Europe at this time, they ate meat and they uh, drank wine all the time. That was basically the whole diet. If you think I'm kidding, but you read up on it, you'll see. And uh, huge amounts of wine, by the way. Water was not I know you think I'm kidding, but I'm really not. Water was not drunk. Uh, mine was drunk in Herculean proportions, as uh, Professor Salvage puts it. And, um, and anyway, you need people who can bring the goods in and sell this stuff out. And Charlemagne, being a smart guy, wanted guys to export, and what guys can handle the import, and the Jews are the ones. Because right? they got the international connections, and they are not a threat. You don't want to bring in Arabs and Muslims because they might take over the country like they're doing right now in France. You don't want to have any problem with the burqas and all that. You bring in the Jews, it's a tiny number, and the Jews ain't going anywhere because the Jews in the area I'm talking about, as is always the case, had always to live on sufferance and of service. They were there on sufferance, meaning as long as the guy feels like it, you can kick him anytime he wants. And they're there because they're of service. They have no right to be there. But the Jews, you know, learned long ago to work in that environment, and their attitude was they'll find, they want to get in wherever they can, they want to try to find whatever kind of business opportunities over there and develop them and do their own thing. Um, we do know that uh, in Charlemagne's time and the time of his son, Louis the Pious, uh, the, uh, bi uh, one of the bishops of Lyon, uh, Dagobert of Lyon, writes a famous thing, it's online if you want to read it, an anti just look up anti-Semitism or whatever, the Jews are running the whole kingdom, you know, they're, 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 they're all over the place like flies, and they're insulting the Christians, and they're taking over and all this kind of business, all of which means that there were Jewish communities in the time of Charlemagne there afterwards, and they were economically active, and some guys didn't like it, surprise, surprise. Are these the Ashkenazi Jews? We don't know. There are legends, I repeat, there are legends, that are repeated over and over again, like in the Jewish Marshal and places like that, that one of the kings named Carla is that Charlemagne? Is, do, is the account accurate? No way to ascertain this. Here's, for those of you who really want to be eggheads, here's the book from Professor Grossman. Now, this guy is Mr. Ashkenazi Jewry to the nth degree uh, in terms of academic scholarship. And he'll chase, chase down every legend and every little uh, detail over here. And you'll find out that, you know, we don't really know. A lot of these are, are conjectures. And do we, so, uh, are there Jews in the time of Charlemagne? Ashkenazic Jews will later on believe that they were invited in by Charlemagne, or something along those lines. Um, 
Charlemagne died, it was succeeded by his son, very famous emperor called Louis the Pious, who was the religious, very good to the Jews, better than his father. He actually appointed an official called the Magister Judiarum, a, 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 a secretary of Jewish affairs in the cabinet. This is a guy whose job it is to protect the Jews. Why? Because he's a liberal? Louis the Pious is not a liberal. Because you protect the bees that make the honey. Okay. Uh, and the fact that he had the appointed secretary in charge of Jewish affairs means he knew that there are people out there who want to stare at things. And his idea is like this you stay out of my business. That's what the emperor was saying. These guys are working for me. Okay? And uh, by the way, that is what they were doing. Um, they were called the, uh, the survey camera, which means the uh, servants of the treasury. Um, let's put it this way. This is interesting. In the Middle Ages, there's a hierarchy. It's called the feudal system. At the top is the king, then comes the nobles, then comes this, the bottom are the peasants. Everybody fits in somewhere, supposed to fit somewhere in the chart. And everybody belongs to somebody. The emperor belongs to God. But everybody else belongs to somebody. By the way, it's a machlokis in the Middle Ages even about that, as I'll tell you in a second. The pope says the emperor belongs to me. Right? The emperor says I don't. But who do the Jews belong to? So uh, everybody would like to own the Jews. Let's put it this way. If I had bees, they're making honey, I want to own them. If I'm the local prince, uh, pope, uh, duke, uh, head of the monastery, something like this, these Jews belong to me. I get what they make. The emperor always says they're the survey comrade. They're the, they belong to the Department of the Treasury. <laughs> okay? They're the slaves of the Department of the Treasury. Jews want. Because if you tell me you're a slave of the Department of the Treasury, what you really mean is you're not a slave at all. You understand? The whole point of an intelligent ruler is let these guys alone and let them do their thing. Correct? So whatever the technical term is, what it really means is you're saving them from being under anybody else's control. Um, eventually, this empire uh, breaks up and splits into modern Western Europe. Basically, two countries. You can already see it divided by colors over here. This area called France, and this area, which we would call today Germany, but as you see, it's really Germany, Switzerland, and, and more, and Italy, and, and, and Netherlands, and all that business called the Holy Roman Empire. And the reason called the Holy Roman Empire is because Charlemagne, as a matter of politics, wanted, remember I told you this is a, a world in which you combine the barbarian stuff with the Roman stuff with the Christian stuff. All together, that's how you make your value system and your culture. So Charlemagne said, I'm already a barbarian emperor because I killed everybody who got in my way. I'm already a, uh, I want to be a Roman emperor because I heard Julius Caesar was a hush of a guy and I want to be like that. And I also want to be the emperor that God chooses, and the, that's the Pope's job. So, for various reasons, okay, is that okay? For various reasons, uh, he got himself crowned by the Pope in, in the year 800 as the, not the Roman Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, which means the Christian Roman Emperor. And this became the title of the ruler of all these territories over here. And without going through all the boring details, there's constant wars, but it boils down to there's going to be a kingdom of France, and there's going to be this other thing called the Holy Roman, Holy, Holy Roman Empire. And they're going to quarrel and fight a lot. Surprise, surprise. Um, over the course of next century, in other words, in the 800s into the 900s, between 850 and 900, we pick up the smell of Ashkenazic Jewry. You start to hear about these uh, Jews that have a peculiar character. Uh, part of the character is the fact that they're basically six, they're all relatives. There are six or seven families that moved in there into this area that I'm pointing right up here and into, uh, I guess we'd call it Western France, Eastern Germany, this whole business over here. Um, 
small number, as I say, six or seven families, that's where you get the Tay-Sachs from, because they all marry each other for hundreds and hundreds of years, because there's nobody else to marry. And everybody's related ten times over. And you, uh, small numbers of people, uh, they are living in this environment in which you have kings and knights like Ivanhoe all killing each other, all the rest of it, and trying to make a living. And the reason they're allowed over there is they're the bees that produce the honey. So the, they, they are the guys who bring in uh, goods. They're the guys who export goods to the degree that you're able to do that in the Middle Ages. If there's any kind of a trade, whether it's spices or in furs or even slaves or in war things, but this is, you know, so the merchants are not the knight and the merchants are not the local peasant. And there aren't too many, hardly any of what you call the middle class. The middle class are primarily um, um, what do you call it? Shopkeepers, you know, the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, that sort of thing you have in the town, who have their own sweetheart deals in the Middle Ages. They have what you call the guilds, which is a monopoly. So I'm the only barber in town, and nobody else is allowed to be a barber. That's the first rule that we pass the city council. City council is composed of the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. And what are the first four, four rules passed by the city council? One butcher, one baker. And, and that's how it went in the Middle Ages, and it lasted to the modern period. And the idea was the butcher's entitled to the protection of his uh, business and the pro against competition. You know, if you study the old guild rules, you can't become a barber unless you were 20 years as a journeyman and then you marry the other. It doesn't take 20 years to be a barber. Right? Not that I know, but anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> but so I'm told. The, the, the fact is that somewhere along these lines in the 800s, 900s, you get this group of Jews that have a slightly different character, and we call them the Ashkenazim. These are already Talmudic Jews. They're Jewish Jews. They're part of the mainstream Jewish culture, which finally has spread into this area. But how? Uh, did it come this way, through Italy? Did it come this way, maybe, through uh, France or through Provence, which was another culture at that time? Did it come from Babylonia over here, like that? Or did it come from Eretz Yisrael, like that? Every theory you want to, somebody's written a book and will swear by it. I mean, nobody knows. It's really very interesting. That who we are in our, in our original origins, there are many guesses. All we know is that at this time, as I just described to you, it's an economic happy hunting ground. Because if you're Jewish and you move to a certain neighborhood and you go, for example, into the jewelry trade or the money lending trade or the spice trade, you're the only one. Okay? And therefore, economics dictates that you're not going to have large Jewish communities. The opposite. If I see there's a bunch of Jews over here, that's exactly where I don't want to move. I want to move to a place where I'm the only guy around. And as a result, a whole Jewish culture, I repeat it, Jewish culture emerges among these early Ashkenazic Jews in which, um, how shall I put it, uh, this is my town. <laughs> you understand? I have the uh, monopoly on the Gaisha trade here in furs or in lumber, or in something like this. And you didn't have the right to horn in on it. You, get it. you didn't have the right. There was actually a technical term for this, a marufia, which is an Arab word, which means a monopoly. And there are whole discussions in the early, early, early Shalas and Chubas that if this guy has the monopoly in this area, can know that you move and horn in on him or not, and be, you, know, you won't be surprised to say that the answer is usually no. Move to another town. And so you're constantly talking about Jews looking for new areas to move into in which there's no other Jews. It's kind of funny, but you understand the economic necessities that are, are, are getting it over there. And if 
that is true, then it really was an economic happy hunting ground because you'll always be able to make a parnosa. If you want a little bit of an example of what I'm talking about, not exactly the same thing, think maybe some of your grandparents were like that. Think about the Jews that moved to this country 100 years ago or even a little longer, and uh, not everybody went to the Lower East Side to work in the sweatshop. Not everybody moved to Baltimore, Maryland or places like that. That's one possibility, of course, you can do it. But other people did something else. They moved to, I don't know, Aberdeen, to, to, to North Carolina, to, to Kansas, uh, to Iowa. And the reason they did that is, he's the one Jew in the town with a, with a shoe store or a you know, clothing store or something like that. It's all over the country. And I don't say you become a millionaire, but you make a decent living. Um, the issue is what will you do with your kids when they grow up to a certain age. I am well aware of that. But on the other hand, as a Parnassus is concerned, it's like uh, the last thing this guy wants is 20 Jews to move into the town, you see? And so you have that kind of um, you know, interesting situation arising. It's also the lands of cultural insularity because, as I've mentioned here in the past, um, Europe at this time is going through basically the Dark Ages. And that means that we have to contrast what's going on over here on the one hand versus what's going on here in, in Muslim Spain and the Islamic world on the other hand. Because for a variety of historical reasons, when the Arabs conquered their great empire in the 600s, one of the things they did was they Arabized it as well as they Islamized it. They imposed the Islamic religion, um, and they also imposed the Arabic culture. If not immediately, then after a little while. So even though the Jews weren't forced to become Muslims, but they did Arabize in the very same way that you and I have Americanized. After all, here is a lecture in an Orthodox synagogue in the English language. Why is it in Hebrew? Because everybody knows the English language, they've Americanized to the linguistic uh, level. The um, point is that um, if that was the case, then the Jews who lived in the Arabic lands were acculturated. They could read secular literature, and the Arabic empire and culture actually produced secular literature alongside the religious stuff. You know the Arabs did big things in mathematics and arithmetic and science and chemistry and uh, lots of other areas. Um, let alone poetry and novels and that sort of business, 1,001 Arabian Nights. So uh, you could be Jewish and read that because it's got nothing to do with religion. And therefore, Jews could become culturally less insular if they wish to, if they live in these areas. By contrast, the Jews who live in these areas that I'm pointing over here, Ashkenaz, what you have in the 9, 10, 1100s is a Christian world in which the whole culture is Christian. There are no bookstores, there are no movies, there's no television, there's nothing to do, there are no magazines. Anything that's written, and there are very few things that are written in those days, you know, are written by monks with the illuminated manuscripts in the monasteries and that sort of thing, and they have to do with Christianity. They could be the lives of the saints, they could be uh, Christian tales, they could be the New Testament, it doesn't matter what it is, but it's not something that's going to interest a Jew. Right? It's not a book about science or math, it's not a book of, of a novel, it's not a book about anything except some aspect or another of Christianity, and that's a turn off, not a turn on. And the result is that if you're an Ashkenazic Jew living the 8, 9, 10, 11, 1200s, in these areas, there's no way to turn culturally but inward, meaning if you have a brain, you have any kind of intellectual curiosity whatsoever, and I told you you're living in a town where there's no books, and I told you in town there's no television, and there's no, you know, no internet, so what do you do? You go crazy. You see? If you're not intellectual, you have a wonderful time. But if you get drunk, you know? There are countries and cultures like that. But if you are, what do you do? It's not a problem. If you're Jewish, you can always turn inward. If there's no books to read, you can read the Torah. You can read the Gemara, whatever, that sort of thing. And that's what they do. And so therefore, the Ashkenazic Jews, by uh, process of elimination, you might say, is, uh, turns into a happy land of cultural insularity. 
because you have generation after generation growing up, uh, not that anybody planted, in which the only thing they do is Jewish stuff. Okay? I'm going to roll my window up in the car. Because it's going to rain. In the, in, in the alley over here. I didn't know it's going to rain on me. The point is that uh, these Ashkenazi Jews therefore develop a, a very particular cultural profile. Um, really, if you're a woman, I mean, what, 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 what's, what's, uh, you know, what, what's there to read? Don't be surprised if you'll find women reading uh, lots of Jewish books, including sometimes the Talmud and these sort of things, in the 9th and 1100. There are no books to read. Okay? What are you doing Shabbos? You know, what are you doing Yantav? Think, think about that social reality. Okay, now, uh, the church, which is never really totally friendly to the Jews, in the time I'm talking about, it's still in its infancy, relatively speaking. It's concentrating on other things. It's got its attention fully uh, uh, drawn to the East to conquer the barbarian peoples who have not yet become Christians and impose Christianity upon them. Remember I told you about Charlemagne? One of the things he did is he fought the Saxons. And then he gave them the choice to convert to Christianity and burn their trees, which they worshipped as gods, or else suffer the fate of death. And they chose death, so he killed you know, 4,500 of them, 45,000, I forget which one, and burned all the trees. You know, this is what the church is involved in in the 8, 9, 10 hundreds. They're also involved in these big struggles w w with the kings and the emperors. Who's the boss? Is it the pope or is it the king? Get it? And it usually develops, as we'll see very interestingly, in these Henry VIII type situations, in which the king is Catholic, so he can't get divorced. So the king marries X, but at, and usually at the age of three or four, he's married off to X. And it turns out that when he's five, six, seven, or ten, he wants to marry Y or something like that for a variety of reasons, and the pope won't give him permission, and then you have fights. You see? And, you know, uh, that's what the church is occupying itself. That's good because it means they don't have time to pay attention to these small groups of Jews. You get it? Let them concentrate on whatever they want to concentrate. Let them do Catherine, the Great, uh, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and all that and leave us alone. Okay? So um, that means that the period I'm talking about, you're not going to have what came much later. Not during the Crusades, by the way, as we'll see, contrary to popular belief where the church itself as an institution turned its attention when it had time on the Jews, and then it was bad news. As I'm going to try to explain to you, in 1096 in those times, when the Crusades occur, the church is really not into the Jews. It's an unexpected set of developments. So it's a kind of strange in that regard. Um, so the Jews in this area over here, um, they're in Germany and in France. That's what I'm talking about. We're talking about the Ashkenazi Jews in the area of Germany, which is the Holy Roman Empire, this large area on the one hand, and France, which is the other one. The Jews look funny. They look different than other people. Um, in Germany, the non-Jews are okay with that. In France, it seems not. Just like today. Right? France, they just passed laws about burqas and bales and all that kind of stuff. Because, and it's very interesting, because the French from long ago had this kind of culture where we tell everybody how to think and how to dress and how to eat and all the rest of it. The French is the best way. It's kind of interesting. And if they see somebody with payas or a strama or a capota, it really turns them off. Now, in the Middle Ages, you didn't exactly have the strama and the capota, but you had the medieval version of it, which was that. See this hat? This, uh, all, I'm not kidding. This is the Jewish hat. Judenhut, right? Middle Ages, and this is the Jewish style, and that's how you always tell. Uh, and believe you me, Somebody works like a dog during the week, comes home on Shabbos, goes to Shul, gets his special hat out, and you know his, his, his garb and all the rest of it. This is how the Jews look. In France, they really don't like that. 
and there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And as a result, um, and especially in France, there are small communities in vast seas of non-Jews who don't like them. And so you'll find that under this pressure, uh, Jews in France don't wear yarmulkes. They go around bareheaded, even in shul. Uh, they, they daven without a yarmulke. They get aliyahs without a yarmulke. It's a later post-given Germany kind of protest against this, but I'm telling you the way it developed in Russia time over there. Uh, Jews in France shave. Oh, we have pictures of it. Uh, did they shave with a razor, not with a razor? I, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt they shaved without a razor. Who knows, right? Uh, no, I want to explain what I'm talking about. How do you make a living if you're Jewish in France? At the time I'm talking about, you got to go out and do business. Um, the big guys have import-export operations and all that sort of thing. What do the little guys do? They peddle. One kind of peddling or another. Okay? Uh, that means you have to go around among the Gentiles. Uh, they really don't like you if you look this way or that way. You can get into trouble. You can get killed. And so you got to do what you got to do. It's not that different today in many places. Okay? We live, thank God, today in a much more liberal society. But it's not liberal everywhere. I wouldn't advise you to do that everywhere in America, and I certainly wouldn't advise you to do that all over the world. And so already in the time of Rashi, uh, rabbis, people whose business kept them entirely within the Jewish shtetl, so to speak, they dressed Jewish. The elders didn't. But on Shabbos, the guy comes home, and he puts on his... Jewish hat and his little outfit over there and all the rest of it and he you know, so he's clean shaven but you know like you see some people in Baltimore you know they'll wear their Hamburg hat and all the rest of it because it's something they want to feel Jewish and it's a perfectly understandable kind of thing uh, that's how it was in, in France and Rashi's time think about what I just said think about people getting an aliyah and all that bareheaded uh, today it's not like reform Judaism or something like that but uh, this was the norm once upon a time um Ashkenaz. If we go one country over, though, in, in the Holy Roman Empire, for a variety of reasons, over here, yeah, that's fine. In, in, uh, in the Holy Roman, things were a little bit different. I'm not 100% sure myself why. The Germans at the time I'm talking about seem not to have too many issues with this, and maybe it's also because the rulers were tougher. Okay? The Holy Roman Emperors at the time I'm talking about tried their best to be strong, and one of the things they did was offer protection to the Jews. Maybe that had something to do with them, I'm not sure. But Ashkenaz becomes the site, or the Rhineland over here. There's the Rhine River, and there's uh, some of the important communities over there that I'm pointing to, whether you can identify them or not. These become the sites of Torah study, of Talmudic study. Ah, now we're talking about not just a bunch of Jews collecting here and there who are doing marufias and selling uh, import and export. We're talking about the establishment of a Jewish culture. And that becomes the hallmark of the Ashkenaz. It's not just another community. Because in Jewish history, we have dozens of communities which leave no trace, which there was no trace. And it's very interesting in Jewish history to talk about the issue of quality and quantity. Because, uh, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, there are a lot more Jews living in Buenos Aires today than in Baltimore. But I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, because I imagine there's a lot more Jewish culture going on in Baltimore, than in, in, and especially religious, than in Buenos Aires, even though the numbers are different. And same thing in throughout history around the world. There could be countries in which there are lots of Jews, but there's no Judaism. And sometimes you can have tiny communities, right, in which there's hardly anybody there, but there's Judaism. Those of us who went on the Spain trip, you saw you go to Gibraltar, for example, there's a couple hundred Jews, literally a couple hundred Jews, but there's Judaism, you see? And you go to other places in which there are vast numbers of Jews, and there's nothing. 
And so Ashkenaz, wouldn't this be so interesting to us, um, only for historical specialists, if it simply was a place where a number of Jews lived in these centuries. But rather, as you and I know, they end up becoming centers of Jewish culture, publishing works of Jewish uh, uh, literature and culture which profoundly affect us today and actually are formative of the Jewish personality and that's why it's so uh, important to us. And all we know, because we don't have any real historical evidence of the origins beyond the legends, is that by the time we get to the 900s, a little bit later I was talking about, in Mainz, which is on the Rhine River, there's already a yeshiva, a significant yeshiva, which means they're studying the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud in the 10th century, which is long, long ago. How did it get there? How did it start? Who made it and all those, we don't know, right? There are all kinds of theories, but we don't know. All we do know is that there's a couple of names that no one's ever heard of, Rabbi Leontin or Rabbi Shon Ben Kolonibism. It doesn't mean anything except the specialists. Long ago, somebody must have moved there from somewhere and set up uh, you know, a, a center, a, a yeshiva or something like it over there. And that means that this is already a place with its own axis and, and center. It's not connected with Jews, Jews elsewhere, as I'm pointing over here but it has its own center and its own heartland, and that's where people are going to go and look to, to if you want to study Judaism. And if you have a son in those days who uh, shows any kind of intellectual promise, you're going to send him to one of those places, particularly to the yeshiva of Mainz. Um, by the time you get to the late 900s, we already hear of the first Godal, Bene Gershom, Ragma, Bene Gershom or Hagola, the light of the exile. And those we feel somebody's a big rabbi in the usual sense that we think about it. Where did he come from? How did it well, yeah, Again, a lot of opinions. Nobody knows exactly. But we already know that here's somebody we could sink our teeth into. Because here's someone who already is in the model of what you and I think of as an Ashkenazi Gado, even down till today. He's Rosh Hashiva, he's a posting, he's a rabbi, you know, he has Talmidim, and all that kind of business. And uh, even though we don't have a lot of uh, information, we have nothing that he wrote. Next week, I hope to talk about. Um, you know, his famous uh, rulings. I'll give you an example. He stopped polygamy and things like that. But uh, we don't have any of this at first hint, which is why people speculate about it down till today. Um, it all comes from later sources that tell us what he wrote. It's, uh, you know, you can count on your fingers the actual original things that we have from Bene Gershom, very, very little. Uh, but we know that he, under him, this town of Mainz becomes like Lakewood, you know what I mean? Like Bene Brock, for some reason or another. And that's of great... Uh, importance and obviously you have someone with authority we have someone who's from this group and the others listen to him because after all if he says there should be only monogamy why should I listen to him who, who, you don't have any power to make up a rule after the Gemara no one has a maybe you know this maybe you don't know this in the Jewish law we have what you call derises and you have derabonans two branches of Jewish law those which are from the biblical and those who come from the rabbis the system self-defines these terms as meaning that this is up to the Talmud period, not afterwards. So no rabbi or group of rabbis after the period of the Talmud has the right to issue legislation among the Jewish people till today. And a lot of people don't know that. I repeat, there's no such thing as a rabbi or a group of rabbis that has the authority to legislate. They can suggest, they legislate for, for, for the Jewish people. Okay? That ended with the Talmudic period. So here comes somebody named Rabbi Gershom, they say, and he issues all kinds of rulings. Uh, polygamy and monogamy are very important rules. Um, whether or not you can divorce your wife against a will, which he prohibits. It's a very important rule in life. And where do you get the authority? And yet, he, it's listened to. Right? So you already have a community which, although it's scattered in different places, has a center, and there's some kind of charismatic authority over there. You must have been quite an impressive person. Um, 
as I say, I'll go into this more next week. In France, as I said before, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. Uh, some of the, we find early in the 900s already, there's a couple of the kings of France that want to burn some Jews and things like this. Uh, and the popes stopped them, believe it or not. So, you know, if the pope is the good guy, you're really talking about some, some, some difficult situations over here. And uh, to be perfectly honest, very often, based on the little that we have, the trouble is started by Jews, by the overzealous proselytizing of the Jews. Because in the Middle Ages, not many people are aware of this, uh, even though we say formally, and it is true, that we're not in favor of converting people, and we don't proselytize, but that's the official position of the Jewish people. On the ground, individual Jews have a big mouth, and they did it. It's sort of like talk shows today. Nobody authorized every fool to call up the talk show and tell what the Jewish religion position is, but they do anyway, you understand? And so throughout these centuries, you often found it's a perfectly unsimple situation. Here's a Jewish merchant, and he comes to a French town or a German town, and he ends up in conversation with the customers or maybe other people, and after all, he can read and write, so he's already a constant intellectual. And the other intellectuals talk to him and say, why don't you believe in Jesus? Why don't you believe this and that and the other? And he says, well, it's all a bunch of baloney. So yeah, what about all the proofs for Christianity? He gives all the proofs for Judaism. Sometimes it leads to the fact that the local priest, this happens, the local priest or some other guy says, hmm, he's right. He wants to convert to, to Judaism. Then all hell breaks loose. And then the church and everybody gets all up in arms. And next thing you know, the Jews are accused of being Satanists and all the rest of it, and they get killed. So it took hundreds of years for the Jews to learn, keep your big fat mouth shut. But, you know, this is, this is what happened in these, in these centuries. Um, France, let's go to the map of France, yeah. See, this is France at that time. Look at this patchwork over here. Um, if you look closely, this area that I'm pointing to is called the Royal Domain. And what that means is that France was officially a country, but not really. Officially, there's one guy who's the king of France, and it was. And he was formally and religiously supposed to be a king of all this business, but really only controlled this little area over here. And that's good, because a lot of these early French kings didn't sound like they're such nice people. And so if you're Jewish, you might not want to live exactly over there, but on the other hand, you might cut a deal with the guy who's in charge here, 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 all of whom are always looking for bees that produce honey. All right? Uh, Rashi was born, uh, not here, next door, in uh, here, the Duchy of Champagne, the county of Champagne, where they make the champagne stuff. Rashi actually was born in the county seat <laughs> called Troyes. Uh, a county seat in the 10 hundreds is not too different than a county seat in Maryland in 2011. Not much going on over there. But uh, that's where Russia came from. And as I said before, it probably was a few Jews in that town. And they ran whatever business is going on over there. And uh, the reason they lived in a place like that is because the count over here, who was constantly fighting with all these other guys, there's a, it's impossible to describe. I mean, I could do it, but it would drive me crazy to tell all the wars and fightings that going between one group and the other. Uh, the Jews don't care. The Jews just say like this, let me be over here and make my living, let me be over here and make my living, make me over here, here, here. By the way, that belongs to William the Conqueror, who in 1066 crosses and becomes king of England. Battle Hastings, as we all learned in high school. Now, um, uh, as I said before, it's a little bit better, perhaps, in, uh, in, 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 in France, I mean, in, in these little principalities, but it's not so easy. By contrast, if you go one country over to Germany, get to the Holy Roman Empire here. No, yeah, much bigger. So as they say there, believe it or not, Germany was actually better at that time um, <laughs> to the Jews than the French. And part of it is due to the fact, as I told you before, that all during this period, especially the 10 hundreds when the Crusades are going to break out, is one long struggle between the crown and the nobles and between church and state. 
So everybody had their eyes on other prizes other than the Jews. Okay? Uh, again, it's an age of monumental battles between the popes and the emperors. Monumental battles between the emperors and the dukes and the princes. Uh, there's wars continually. Uh, it's almost impossible to keep track of all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Henry I and this one and that one and the other. It's, it's, it, and we're going to be dealing next week or in two weeks with the Emperor Henry IV, who uh, you, you, you wouldn't have to have the patience to read this guy's biography because he, uh, he became the emperor at the age of six when his father died. And as soon as he was crowned, he was kidnapped by a bunch of nobles and taken to another place until he was ransomed out and then rescued. And by the time he's 12, his mother gets killed or something like this. And then, his, then at 15, he becomes the emperor, and he's constantly fighting, you know, and the pope tries to kill him, and he tries to kill the pope, and, he, and then the Duke of Bavaria. You know what I'm saying? It's one long business. And he was a friend of the Jews. <laughs> okay? See, I wonder why. Okay? But nevertheless, he was. And the Jews say like this, who cares? This is our guy. Right? We are in favor of anybody who's in favor of us. Um, in France, you had Philip the Amorous versus the Pope. He's Philip the Amorous because he kept falling in love with these women. He didn't like his wife. He was married to her when he was four or five years old. Um, hated her. She hated him. Pope said, tough luck. He didn't care. Put next communication. He excommunicates the Pope. Gee, I wonder why the King of France and the Emperor of Germany don't go on crusade when the Pope proclaims a crusade in 1095. <laughs> they say to the Pope, you go on crusade. Drop that, you know? And uh, this, is, this, this, this is the way it, it goes. In all of this, the Jews are trying to locate themselves, and um, they develop this yeshiva in Mainz. They develop a culture. They actually make a branch. Like you say, like there's Tells and Tell Chicago. So there's Mainz, and there's Mainz and Worms, because a few miles down the, the, the coast, the Rhine thing is the city of Worms. And they make a branch over there. I'm sure there must have been yeshivas of politics. How many yeshivas can be in one place? And so they end up making two things, which is fine. Ashkenaz is developing into more than just a bunch of merchants who are bees that make honey. They're developing a place where there's Torah learning, where there's a culture. They're forming their own kind of personality. It is already by this time becoming the land of Minhagim, where people are very careful about what their parents did, what their grandparents did. It makes a whole big difference to them. It is the land of piyutim and tefillah issues. Every one of these big rabbis and little rabbis are writing new additions to the prayers. Today, everybody's trying to cut the prayers in order to get out early in time, get to the Kiddush. At that time, it's, it's, it's the opposite. It's hard for Americans to, 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 to click into this mentality where people like to stay in longer. It's hard to click into the mentality in which they like to add poems to the prayers. Okay? The, in fact, if you're a real yakka, you'll never talk about it. You add a lot of poems to the prayers, because after all, a Shabbos, which is coming up, which is going to be beginning of three weeks, is not much different than a Shabbos, which is going to be the second of the three weeks, and it's going to be much different than the Shabbos, which is two weeks before Rosh Hashanah and all the rest of it, and each one should be characterized by the appropriate poems. They pile on the slichas, they pile on the kinos, they pile on all this kind of stuff, and they love it. Okay? It's interesting. What's really happening is you have a variant of what the Catholics are doing, because in the Islamic countries, you don't have this too much, because the Islamic religion is pretty straightforward. They do the same thing all the time. In the Christian Middle Ages, there are all kind of variants on people adding new prayers and from the monasteries. It's a whole cultural thing over there, and the Jews producing their own variant of this. Anybody who wants to have the slightest idea of what I'm talking about, you'll get a hold of this, the Machser Vitri, from Rashi's uh, grandson-in-law or something like this, or Simcha Vitri, okay? Three volumes, and it's a, a Machser, so you know what a Machser is, but it's not really a Machser. It's like a, it's like a Shulchan Aruch in the form of a Machser which is a popular genre in Jewish history. I'll give you, for example, the Yaakov Amdin Sitter, and if you want in our own time, the Art Scroll Sitter. 
when I was in Shomri many years ago, I remember going to a Shalshudas that was sponsored by two guys in Shabbos, uh, two Baal Shubas, nice, very nice fellas, and they were making they were sponsoring the Shalshudas because they were making a him on the art school sitter. And it wasn't it wasn't funny. And it's got a lot of rules and regulations. You can learn a lot from that, can't you? And so imagine when you go back over here when he talks about the Machsavid, what is the right you know, Putin to say, what's the meaning of Pirkei Elvis, and when's the Mashiach coming, and all the rest of it. And here we have Nusach Tsarfas, which once upon a time existed and no longer does. The Nusach of France, which is already differentiating from the Nusach Ashkenaz. It's a whole world of its own little areas. Now, after Abena Gershom dies in 1025, uh, his successor, he leaves it to Rabbi Yitzhak Alevi, becomes a Rashiv in, in uh, Mainz, and uh, Rabbi Yaakov and Yaakov, another student of his, becomes Rashiva in Worms. Again, these places are not too far from each other. One's in Lakewood, one's in Brooklyn, so to speak. Rashi, you've heard of him, born in 1040, right in the middle of all this, born 15 years after the death of Bena Gershom. Uh, he, when he's 20 years old, he goes to learn from Troyes. It's not that far away. There's Troyes, and uh, actually looked it up on the Google. It's 200 miles away from Mainz, so it's like going to New York. Um, the, he goes to learn for four years in the yeshiva in Mainz because he's related to the Rosh Hashiva. Gee, I never heard of that before. And then when the Rashiva, and when the Yitzhak Alevi, when the Rashiva dies, he goes a few miles away to Worms, where the other one is the Rashiva, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yaakov and Yaakov. And uh, that's where he picks up all his, uh, his learning. And everybody's related to each other. Two Rashivas are related, the others are related. If they have fights, it's a fight in the family. If they get along, it's a fight in the family. Everybody is a cousin of some kind or another. That's the way it goes. By the time Rashi returned back home, he had learned 10 years from the age of 20 to the age of 30 yeshiva. In those days, that's a long time. Even today, it's not short. And it was a big London. Uh, Rashi, by the way, goes back to Troy's, this little town. He comes to die in there, uh, but not for pay. Uh, he starts his own little yeshiva. He won't take any money for that. That's all we know about it. Except for the fact that he had three daughters, Yocheved and Miriam and Rachel. So, and we know Rachel had a French name, Delacis, because she got divorced, and we have the get. And to get, you have to say what the both names are, the Hebrew and the other one. We know nothing about Mrs. Rashi. We know anything about it. He was not, he was not a wine merchant. That's a famous old legend. Professor Chaim Salvation has now written exhaustively on this subject. He can prove that they weren't, Jews weren't selling wine in, in where Rashi lived and all the rest of it. And I'm not having to do with me. Doesn't matter. Um, from Rashi, from this whole period, from the Ravina Gershom to Rashi and that whole area, we have the development here in Ashkenaz of a culture which concentrates on what we call the Pashib Shot. It's the golden age of the Pashib Shot. And by that I mean people are trying to make themselves Jews like everywhere else. They're trying to master the Babylonian Talmud and all the rest of it, which is not easy. And um, in these yeshivas and mines and worms and places like that, mainly these two places, they're trying just to understand what the text means at the basic level. Uh, it's not easy. And although it's going to sound funny, I don't mean it to sound funny, they're basically working to try to create an art scroll, right? which is to try to make the Talmud available and understandable uh, to the student. And it's not going to be in English, of course. It's going to be in Hebrew. Uh, in, in, the, we ha in the side of the Gemara, some will know on Talmud, they have the Pirish of Rebbe Gershom, which is really the Pirish of the Yeshiva of Mainz, of Magenza. And Rashi will do a variant of that. I don't want to get too technical over here. But uh, they will produce, as we know, the classics. Rashi certainly produced the classic of the Pashif Shad, of, 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 of revolutionizing Talmud study, not only for the Jews in his area, but for all Jews. 
and uh, will be, the, again, I don't mean it to be funny, but I mean it to be serious, it will be the art scroll of the, of the 11th century, which will have the same kind of effect as the revolution that we're living through at this moment. Okay? And uh, so for all kinds of things that are happening over there. Um, right in this period, in, in 1080s, uh, the, a bunch of Jews moved from Worms down the river to Spires, where you get Shapiro from. And uh, your name is Shapiro. And uh, the reason they're there, because the town burned down, they rebuilt the town, it's under a bishop, and the bishop writes in a very famous letter, Bishop Rudiger, he says, seeking to increase the honor of the town, I invite a bunch of Jews in. Right? Why? We want basil can produce honey. He didn't do it because he liked to hear Yasser Rosenbach. He did it because he knows that it's a, it's, it's uh, going to be, they want to make it a port on the Rhine River. you got to bring in merchants who have other connections and all the rest of it. And indeed, it makes the city uh, uh, flourish. And so I conclude the first part of this by describing, as we see over here, the rise in amorphous ways of this very interesting culture, which has a lot more than I just mentioned tonight, but I'm going to give you the basic outlines, which is going to be different. And as far as we can tell, cut off from the other Jews elsewhere. I don't mean that physically they're not in communication with them, but they develop along their own lines. Um, they are all related to each other. They're small in number, relatively speaking. They have to exist in a hostile Christian world. At the same time, they are on sufferance and of service. Right? They have to be the bees to produce the honey. They have to also, at the same time, live in a place in which there are no books to read, so they turn it on themselves. And they're going to be very Jewish-Jewish. Their, their whole intellectual uh, endeavors are going to be around their own uh, culture. And um, I'll end with this point. How do you raise a kid? Seriously, think about what I'm saying. How do you raise a kid living in an entirely Gentile culture and one that's very hostile to Judaism at many levels, racial and religious and otherwise, and you're the only Jewish family in town or one or two? How do you do it? The other kids make fun of you. The other kids, you know, it's hard. It's not like living here in Baltimore where you have a, a, a compact mass. Some people here have grown up in this environment. They know what I'm talking about. And the answer is, usually it doesn't work. And yet, in these centuries, it worked. How did it work? And the answer goes like this. You raise your kids from the early age to say, guess it's us against them. Everybody out there is bad. They're all bad. We're good. And they say, they hate us. We hate them. We're right. Okay? Uh, very important. Because when the Crusades will come, you will see that these Jewish communities spontaneously, uh, it's not even a question with most of them, rather than join the Christians, which they could all save their lives, so we'd rather kill ourselves, and they do. That's pretty strong. It means with the mother's milk, it was the idea there are two teams out there. And there's the A team and the B team, and we're the B team, and we're right and they're wrong, and anything goes rather than give in to the A team. Right? And uh, you either do that or you assimilate and disappear. So it doesn't sound nice to a modern American audience. They say, why can't everybody grow up with nice tolerance? Why can't it be, I like you, you like me? It's not the Middle Ages, not the reality. Middle Age reality was, I hate you, you hate me. Now that we both acknowledge that, we can possibly be friends. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.